The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by a guest speaker. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this message are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. That's online, wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. 8474. Uh, this morning we get to invite another uh, senior uh, who, Lord willing, will be graduating this May with the other seniors uh, to participate in morning devotions. And this morning we have the pleasure of hearing Melvin Dodinga uh, to bring in the morning devotion. So, Melvin, please come and bring God's word. Thank you for having me this morning. This morning I would like to share with you a meditation from uh, Luke chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 9. The text is verses 57 to 62, but to give the broader context, I'd like to begin reading at verse 51 of Luke 9 and read all the way through chapter 10, verse 2. Hear then the word of the Lord. When the days were approaching for his ascension, Jesus resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him, because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow, and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest." And shall we pray? Lord, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the beautiful world that you have made. And thank you for giving us your word. We seek your blessing, Lord, upon this time that we meditate on your word and, and think about what it means to be a follower of you and to be your disciple. We pray that you would open our ears to hear Open our hearts to understand what your Spirit says 
to your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a long time ago, before any of you were born, there was an athlete who was put to the test. And an athlete put to the test, you think, what's so strange about that? That happens all the time. We have a lot of people on campus who who like athletics, and they often put themselves to the test, whether that be boogie boarding or bicycling, surfing or soccer, ping pong or playing ultimate frisbee. Whatever the sport, athletes will put themselves to the test. But what was unusual about this man I'm thinking of is that he was put to the test not by himself, not by his competitors or by his coach, but he was put to the test by his God. It happened at the Olympics of 1924. It's the story of Eric Little, a story I'm sure most of you are familiar with. That Eric Little was on his way to France, where he was going to run in the 100-meter dash, a race in which he was favored to win a gold medal. But then the test came. He found out that the race was going to be run on a Sunday. And for Eric Little to run a race on Sunday was unthinkable. And so what did he do? Did he reconsider his convictions? Did he try to reason out some way that it would be okay for him to run that race on a Sunday? After all, wouldn't it give a wonderful opportunity to give his testimony and tell the world about Jesus? Should he run in the race or not? For some, that might have been a hard decision to make. But for Eric Little, the decision was easy because it was a decision that was made years before when when Christ became Lord of his life. And that solved a lot of things before they ever even came up. Eric Little would remain resolute in his conviction to be an obedient follower of Christ. And now in Luke chapter 9, we see Jesus making clear that following him is going to have a cost. For Christ himself, It says that he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem, even though he knew that eventually it would cost him his life. And Luke records for us that as Christ is on his way, that he encounters three would-be disciples. And Christ then puts the resoluteness of these wannabe disciples to the test. The first follower says that he will follow Jesus wherever Jesus goes. And at first, we may think that sounds like just the kind of man Christ would want to have as his disciple. For he seemed to know something of the demands of what it took to be a disciple. And yet he promises that he is ready to go anywhere and everywhere with Jesus. But it's clear from Jesus' response to the man that the man really doesn't understand what kind of commitment it's going to take. For Jesus doesn't say to him, what, you will follow me? Great, I love you and have a wonderful plan for your life. No, it it would be more accurate to say, 
that the Savior tells him, I have a difficult plan for your life. In fact, it's definitely not the message of a prosperity gospel. For Jesus says to the man, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. These words of Jesus remind us of all that Jesus has given up to save his people from their sins. It reminds us of what is written of him in Philippians chapter 2, where it says he existed in the form of God, and yet he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Lord of light came to this dark world, and when he arrived, the only place to lay down his sweet infant head was in a manger. And so it often went in his earthly ministry that he wandered about and had no place to call home. Even in the passage that we read this morning in Luke 9, he's passing through Samaria and needs a place to stay, and they won't even put him up for the night. And so it could be that this first wannabe follower, he was going to follow Jesus for the same reason that many in the multitudes followed Jesus, for the exciting things that seemed to happen wherever Jesus went. For people would see healings happening around Jesus and exorcisms. And even in the passage that we read, James and John offer their services to the Lord and say, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume these Samaritans? To a Jew, that would have been real exciting. But Jesus makes clear to this man that to follow him means self-denial and service and sacrifice and suffering. And so with this first wannabe disciple, he seems a little too ready to follow Jesus and yet he doesn't really understand what it takes. Now, the second wannabe disciple, he seems a little too unready. For with the first man, he offers himself to follow Jesus. The second man, Jesus is asking the man to follow him. And it's not that the man rejects Christ, but he does ask if he can delay his stepping into active duty or he wants to take care of some family matters first. He wants to go and bury his father first. And while there is some debate as to whether his father is actually dead or not at this point, what I wanted to focus on in the message this morning is the word first, that he wanted to bury his father first. For when the third man comes along, he too wants to do something else first. And the request that these two men have, it seems reasonable enough to, to take care of some things with their family. After all, God had commanded in the Old Testament that we should honor our parents. And in the New Testament, Jesus once warned the Pharisees 
that they should not let service to God stop a person from honoring their parents. So why was Jesus being so tough? Why was he being so harsh? We need to remember that while Jesus was standing there in the flesh as true man, he's also true God, which means that he's all-knowing, that he can see things that we can't. He can see into these men's hearts. And he knows that they really do not have the commitment that's necessary to be his disciple, that they do not have the commitment to the extent that in all things Christ has preeminence. Yes, there are times where caring for our family is the way that God is calling us to serve him. But we should not let a false sense of duty get in the way of our real duty to Christ. And that seems to be what is the case with these two men in Luke 9, that they want to be followers of Jesus, but they really don't have the commitment for that self-denial and sacrifice that's necessary to be a disciple of Jesus. And so Jesus responds to the third man with a word picture. He says to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and then continues to look back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now this illustration might be a little bit hard for us 21st century city dwellers to understand for most of us probably haven't done much plowing lately. And actually, with today's GPS technology, the modern-day farmer can relinquish control of his tractor to a computer and still get a very straight furrow, even if he falls asleep at the steering wheel. And now, while I am not a farmer, I have worked for some, and in the days before GPS technology, I've been told that the way that you can plow a straight furrow is not by looking back to see how you're doing, but by looking ahead to keep your eyes fixed on an object at the end of the field and keep heading for that object. If you look back, your, lo- your line ends up zigzagging all over the place. When you look back, you don't get to where you intended to go. When you look back, you don't get the job done that you were assigned to do. So here we have these three men, seemingly ready to follow Jesus, and yet Jesus doesn't give them those words of welcome, that final encouragement to get them to take that final step. And it's not that Jesus doesn't want followers, for he clearly does. As we read in chapter 10, verse 2, that Jesus said, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Now, did any of these men become laborers and harvesters? Luke doesn't tell us. Luke doesn't tell us if any of them dropped whatever they were doing and put Jesus first and followed him. Was the first man, 
willing to be homeless for the sake of the gospel? Did the second man let the dead bury their own dead so that he could go out and proclaim the good news? Did the third man keep his hand to the plow? Or did he turn around and look back and go back and say goodbye? Luke doesn't give us the answer, but the absence of an answer makes us ask, what about us? What about you? What about me? Do we have what it takes to follow Jesus fully and perfectly as he demands? Truth be told, I know I haven't done that. Like Lot's wife in the book of Genesis, I should be a pillar of salt, for I've looked back too many times. I've failed in fulfilling what God has called me to do, that I've looked back to what I had. Maybe you feel that way sometimes too, but you haven't fulfilled that calling that God has given you, that you've doubted, that you've been distracted by other things. When we see this in our lives, we grieve over it. But our failure to fully follow Christ is not unprecedented. Even Jesus' disciples, after Jesus died and rose again and appeared to them, they look back. They seem to want to go back to the lives that they once had. We read at the end of the Gospel of John that Peter and some of the other disciples are by the Sea of Tiberias. And Peter says, I'm going fishing. Not for men, but for literal fish. And then the Lord comes along and he enters into a dialogue with Peter. He doesn't get angry and shout at Peter, Peter! What are you doing? I called you to follow me and to be a fisher of men. No, that's not how Christ interacts with Peter. But he calmly begins to question Peter. And he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? And Peter responds, yes. And the Lord says, Tend my lambs. And then Jesus asks Peter a second time, Do you love me? And Peter responds, Yes. And so Jesus says to Peter, Shepherd my sheep. And then a third time, Jesus asks Peter, Do you love me? And Peter the one who at one point had confessed that Christ was indeed the Messiah, and Peter, the one who had boldly said that he would stick with Jesus no matter what, even to the death, Peter, the one who denied Jesus three times when Jesus was in his darkest hour, this Peter responds again, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so Jesus says to him, tend my lambs. And then Jesus 
prophesies what kind of life Peter will have, that it will be one of difficulty and suffering and sacrifice. And then Jesus' last words to Peter in this dialogue is that he commands him once again, follow me. Now in Luke chapter 9, Jesus made clear the high cost of being his disciple. That was before Christ went to the cross. But even after Christ died and rose again, even after Christ's victory over sin and Satan, the cost of discipleship has not changed. God still requires of us that to be a disciple, it means self-denial and sacrifice and suffering. And we know that we have not been able to live up to that perfectly. But there is one who has, and that, of course, is Jesus. And do you remember what I was explaining of what it takes to plow that straight furrow, keeping your eyes fixed on something ahead? In Hebrews 12, verse 2, it tells us, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The only way for us to successfully serve the Savior is by setting our sights on him, not on our own dreams or desires or distractions of the world, which was the case with those three would-be followers in Luke chapter 9. The only way that we can be the follower that Christ demands, the only way we can obey that imperative to follow Christ is to ground it in the indicative of what Christ has already done for us. It's not that we follow him to earn favor with him. No, we follow him to love him, just as with Peter, he would follow Christ because of his love for Christ. It's not that we must do this and live, but see that Christ has done it, believe and live. Only then are we able to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow the master, no matter what the cost. And so, dear brothers and sisters, let's run the race, casting aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance, knowing that Christ has fulfilled all that was required. And so let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, knowing that he lives within us and enables us to follow him. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, thank you for doing what we could not.
Thank you for fulfilling the perfect obedience that was required of us and which we failed to do. We praise you for offering yourself, for taking that path to the cross, even though it meant your suffering and shame. O Lord, how great thou art, how weak we are. Thank you for the forgiveness that can be ours because of what Jesus has done for us. We pray that now you would live within us, fill us with your spirit, just as you filled your disciples on that day of Pentecost. Dwell within us and enable us to follow you no matter what the cost. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. Copyright 2016, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.